360. That is the only podcast in the known universe that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. Uh, we are coming to you at the end of the in-person portion of the fall 2020 semester. We made it, everybody. Wow. We Hooray. made it. You go, UConn. I guess it's possible that something horrible could happen, but let's, let's hope not. <laughs> Let's have faith. We've done good. Although, you know, the last weeks were a little sketchy, but we did what we needed to do and everybody's okay. Yeah. yeah. Everyone is okay. And I hope we're all okay today coming to you from across the Northeast. My name's Tom Breen. I'm your facilitator of sorts. Joining me, as always, are my colleagues Tyler Silverio. Hi, everyone. Julie Bartuka. What's up? And Ken Best. It's getting cold up here. Sure is. It is getting cold. But you know what? It's seasonal. That is the time of year. <laughs> this happens every year. It is New England. We do have weather. That's true. It's true. We also have news this program. Ken, you've got some news. What are you going to share with us? Well, this ties into the story that we're going to be talking about uh, pretty soon. Despite the pandemic that has disrupted a lot of things, uh, you can participate in our basketball games in the upcoming season. Because you've seen how in, in professional sports, these panels have been showing up in the stands of people's faces and stuff. You can now do that for UConn and Gamble Pavilion. There's an effort going on right now. It's part of the Bleed Blue campaign presented by Lewis Real Estate that allows fans to be part of this season. Fan cutouts and commemorative tickets to each of the Big East home openers for men's and women's basketball. And the proceeds of the campaign will go to the Fight On Fund to support our student-athletes. So if you go to the fof.uconnhuskies.com website, you can get more information. And information on the season is at uconnhuskies.com. How much do those uh, cutouts go for? There's combination packages. They start at $50 and go all the way up, including, I believe, some that would be signed by the coaches ah, to get back to you. That's pretty neat. So you get, your, you get your panel after it appears on. And you would be interested TV. in knowing you could have your favorite pet join part of oh. Jonathan's pack oh, if you want. Oh, I've got to look into this. Ruby and Champ want in. That's awesome. That's the big news this week. That's good, lighthearted news. And uh, and Ken, you kind of set yourself up with a perfect segue there. That uh, that story dovetails nicely with the uh, the piece you have for us this week. Tell us about that. After seven years in the American Athletic Conference, as I think everyone knows, UConn comes back to the Big East, and that's uh, big news in college basketball. UConn was a founding member of the Big East 34 years ago, and Gamble Pavilion became the capital of the basketball world in 2004 when both teams won the NCAA championships, and with repeat titles again in 2014, UConn remains the only program to win both titles, men's and women's, in the same year. The Big East Media Day was held virtually, like most things these days, and UConn's return to the conference was prominent in the media sessions for both of the teams, which took place over two consecutive days. Uh, we'll start hearing f remarks from Big East Commissioner Val Ackerman, who previously was a president of the WNBA. For the first time since our realignment uh, seven years ago, we have a new school. But as John Paquette likes to remind me, it really is an old school. As all of you know, we, uh, we formally welcome UConn back into the Big East in July. And we very much look forward to working with athletics director Dave Benedict and coach Dan Hurley and their staffs to make this a win-win arrangement. 
the transition of Yukon back into the Big East, coronavirus notwithstanding, has gone very smoothly. And we're certain that Husky basketball, men and women, will help allow us to maintain our high perch in the college basketball world for many years to come. We're, of course, looking forward to working with Coach Oriema, who's entering his 36th year in stores and was a 10-time Big East Coach of the Year when he was with us last. I've had a chance to know Gino for the past 25 years, dating back to the early days of the WNBA. And I, I know, without a doubt, he'll add uh, a great deal both on the floor and in our meeting rooms. He already has. We also look forward to the uh, Big East debut of the nation's top-ranked freshman and Paige Beckers, who clearly has a very bright basketball future ahead of her. Also new this year will be the site of the Big East women's basketball postseason. We were very excited to announce um, in August that we've entered into a three-year deal with Mohegan Sun Arena to host the 21, 22, and 23 Big East women's basketball tournaments in Uncasville. Providence men's head coach Ed Cooley and DePaul's men's head coach Dave Liotto both have personal and professional ties to UConn before moving to Providence where he and Dan Hurley competed as crosstown rivals on the court. Cooley was the head coach at Fairfield. Husky fans will remember Liotto as the former assistant to Jim Calhoun. They both were asked about UConn's return to the Big East. Dan is, is a phenomenal coach, uh, you know, excited to have Connecticut back as it's a regional game for us. They're an original Big East member. It's a natural fit. It's, it's going to be exciting to compete, you know, to go to Gamble and or Hartford. A fan base on both sides will, will be excited to play one another. He's done a really good job building that program back. It's a national program. We'll be excited to see Gino, who I'm very, very close with. It'll be fun. It'll be a lot of fun. And I'm looking forward to competing against a very, very good basketball team. My time there has meant the world to me personally, has meant the world to me professionally. Entering back into the Big East is monumental because of success that they've had as a major force in this league. I compliment Coach Hurley for quickly returning back to a style of play and a physical nature and the things that UConn has stood for, he's quickly returned to. There's, There's an immediate worry from my standpoint about the two visits that we'll have with them, one here in Chicago and, and one in Connecticut. So I think there's the here and now of which Coach Hurley's done a really good job and then there's a historical part. And I'm sure, you know, going back there will we'll, as I have before with with a couple of other teams will be a little bit more emotional than a normal game. But our team and their team will compete at a high level as all schools and, and teams do in this league. And and so I'm looking forward to it, looking forward to seeing some some old faces and uh, and just enjoying the experience because I know the positivity of UConn and the Big East has, has been such a wonderful thing nationally for college basketball. Pat Eaton Rob covers UConn sports for the Associated Press in Hartford, and he led off the questions to Dan Hurley. Coach, can you just address what rejoining the Big East has already meant to the program and what it means in terms of recruiting and what it means in terms of getting you back to where this, where you want this program to be. The return to the Big East has been a, a, a really incredible infusion of energy, just a real a much needed jolt for, for the fan base, for the program, just to create another level of excitement. You know, we were well on our way to getting the level of talent in here back to the level it needed to be. Our first recruiting class, when there was no hint of the Big East, was, you know, Jane, was Booknight, Akuka Cook, and, and Jalen Gaffney, and RJ Cole. And uh, so we were already recruiting at a very high level. 
uh, but it, it certainly has has enhanced that. You know, just uh, just added to the excitement level uh, surrounding us. And can you address having played in this conference? What is the difference? What does it mean to play a Big East game, and what is it like for a player? And how different is that from other places? The difference from where we've been the last couple of years is these games are like high profile. Everyone's watching Big East basketball. It's, uh, you know, this is national stage games. This is absolutely no nights off home or away. You could lose any, you know, any game because, you know, top to bottom, there's just no nights off in a conference like this. You know, the electricity on game night, every single night, all 20 games, uh, you can't sleepwalk through a half. During the Women's Basketball Media Day, Gino Oriama's close friend Doug Bruno of DePaul was asked about what UConn's return to the Big East meant and how it might affect other teams scheduling strong teams as out-of-conference opponents in the future. I believe UConn is the best program in the history of all college basketball, and I'm old enough to have watched very closely the Coach Wooden teams of the 60s and, and 70s. So that said, this is the absolute best program. It's absolutely going to lift us. And at the same time, I still think you have to play a tough schedule to get specific to your question. I still think you have to play a tough non-conference schedule, even knowing that you're, you're going to come up against a really, really difficult opponent in the Big East with UConn. In the old Big East, you had not only UConn, but you had four and five and six ranked teams in January and February. And Jim Crowley said it earlier, uh, this Big East since realignment has been as tough as the old Big East, it just didn't get the, it hasn't gotten the recognition. It's a great league. UConn is going to make it much better. And at the same time, I think non-conference, we can't just soften it up now because we're counting the two games that we're going to be playing against UConn. So now decrease the non-conference schedule. I think the non-conference has still got to be really, really difficult. As you might expect, Gina Wariema had expansive remarks about the return to the Big East, which eventually had some humor injected into the proceedings. You know, it's been something that obviously everybody at our at our school and, and everybody in the state of Connecticut has been excited about being back in in the league. And uh, the players that we have now have never played in the Big East, so they really don't, you know, they don't have the history that, um, you know, my coaching staff and, you know, CD and Shay and, and Jamel who played in the, in, in the Big East and, and coached in the Big East. It's ironic that this this particular team this year, we don't have any seniors. So the team that you see us opening the season with is, um, is one of the youngest teams we've ever had here. The last time we had seven players that had not suited up ever for Connecticut. The last time that that happened was in 1988. And uh, that's a long time ago. But we had a great year that year. We actually won the Big East Championship for the very first time with those seven, seven new players. This is obviously is a different Big East and, and um, you know, we've got a couple returning players and Kristen, who you see and, and, uh, and Olivia, um, you know, they, you know, they're in their third year playing for us and they have the experience of playing in a lot of big games and, and, and winning a lot of big games and playing in the final four. And, you know, so we're really going to rely on them heavily for, for a lot of things, you know, on and off the court. That's always the key to, to a team success, you know, what kind of leadership you're getting from your upperclassmen. And we're hopeful that, you know, Avina can shake off some of the rust of not playing a lot during the last 
year, year and a half, and then coming off of surgery. So those three, I think, are going to be a, a big focal point for our team and how well they play this season will determine what kind of season we have. And our two sophomores with Aubrey and, and Anna coming off freshman year where they, they each had kind of like their own uh, moments, you know, where they, they looked like they were going to be really, really good players. And now, you know, they're anxious to be more consistent, to, to be more productive. And they can be. Uh, and they've both improved from last season. And our young players, they've never played a college game. I don't even know why we have a preseason freshman of the year. That's pointless. I thought we did away with that stuff. I, I know like we used to have like a preseason all freshman team where you actually had to vote for five guys who you've never seen play a college game. Hey, I think they're going to be first team all Big East freshmen. Like, yeah, come on. You got to be kidding me. By the end of the year, half of those guys didn't even play. So, you know, I don't even know. Here, let me put my hand over. Why, I don't even know why we have Paige on this call, you know. So, anyway, <laughs> everybody knows, you know, everybody knows about Paige. Everybody knows. That's what comes with being so highly recruited, and, and that's all the attention, and that's all well and good. Paige handles it great. She's a great teammate. She's, you know, easy to coach. She's easy to be around with, with her teammates. You know, I don't, I don't think Paige is single-handedly going to come in here and win us a national championship. That's not how this works the other young players are all going to contribute in their own way. And some of them more than others, you know, by looks of it right now, if you come to our practices, there are times when Aliyah, you know, Aliyah Edwards and Nika Mule, you know, those, those guys, sometimes they look like they've been playing college basketball for a while, you know, because they fit right in, they slide right in, you know, the, so Paige, Nika, Aliyah, they, they kind of mix really, really well with our returning players, you know, Mir, once in a while, Piath, Autumn, who was a walk-on, less. But everybody's gotten better. Everybody's gotten better. Everybody's been able to catch up, you know, a little bit more each each and every day, each and every uh, each and every week that we've practiced. We're like everybody else. I think we're anxious for hopefully, you know, a safe season, a healthy season, and um, you know, I can't wait for the games to begin. To be honest with you, I think the kids are already sick of practice. I know I am. <laughs> Preseason voting uh, is, is just something to talk about. But in the conference, uh, in men's basketball, Villanova was picked to uh, finish the season in first place. They are number three nationally ranked in preseason, followed by Creighton, who is ranked number 11 nationally, and then Providence. UConn was selected fourth, coming back into the Big East. There are a couple of pieces of information we just learned. The men will start the season today, as you are listening to us, on November 25th against Central Connecticut State after coming out of a pause due to a positive COVID test in the team's bubble two weeks ago. And yesterday, the women's team reported a positive test in their bubble, so they are now in a 14-day pause in activities that will delay the start of their season. They were scheduled to play this weekend in the Hall of Fame Women's Challenge at Mohegan Sun. All right. It's always a good time of year, even though, obviously, this season will be a little bit different. I think we would have won last year. We would have gone big last year if we got to finish. I'm bummed. Well, I was at the last game uh, at, when the AAC tournament ended and UConn won, and we didn't know then what we know what now, What was coming. I know. That was the last time I was out of the house, really. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully this is a good year. Weird good year. Julie. Yes. You've been spearheading the Brave Space series here on UConn 360, and you've got another Brave Space interview for us. 
We do. I have another installment of Brave Space. And just a reminder, that's a platform for honesty and presence, where we invite diverse perspectives on how the university and our society can do the work of becoming a truly welcoming environment, not just on paper, but in practice. This week, we're talking to Avi Noam Pat, who is the Doris and Simon Conover Chair of Judaic Studies and the Director of the Center for Judaic Studies and Contemporary Jewish Life here at UConn. Pat is a prolific author and editor, and our wide-ranging conversation includes discussions of a couple books he had uh, co-edited that came out earlier this year, Laughter After, Humor and the Holocaust, and Understanding and Teaching the Holocaust. I did want to talk first a little bit about the book that you co-edited, Laughter After, Humor and the Holocaust. Just broadly, what role does humor play in societies kind of dealing with really horrific things? My co-editors and I, so David Slukey and Gabriel Finder and myself gathered together about 15 other collaborators who also were really fascinated by this question of taboo topics. What are you allowed to laugh at? What do societal conventions suggest you should avoid making fun of? And of course, one of those number one questions, are you allowed to laugh about a topic as serious as the Holocaust? I had done some work on Jewish humor among survivors in the immediate aftermath of the war, where there was a lot of evidence of both victims during the Holocaust and survivors in the aftermath of the war who used humor as sometimes a psychological defense mechanism, sometimes a weapon to attack Nazis, sometimes a coping mechanism after the war. We were fascinated by this question of how does humor function today in the memorial landscape of the Holocaust? What are the ways in which both comedians and survivors and descendants of survivors use humor to continue to wrestle with the challenges of Holocaust memory, but also as a weapon to attack perpetrators and Nazis. The timing of when it came out in April of 2020 was exactly when we were starting to grapple with the global pandemic, living through a time of crisis. And a lot of people were thinking about how do you use humor in difficult times as kind of a psychological means of coping with intense stress. And so we had a number of articles that came out in the popular press at the same time that were looking at sort of what can we learn from tragedies of the past to deal with our current struggles. So to completely shift gears and go into the more serious side, you've been very busy. You also co-edited a book that was recently published, Understanding and Teaching the Holocaust. Now in this current landscape that we're in, why is really understanding the Holocaust so important? We argue that it's critically important today, 75 years after the end of the Second World War, to continue to learn the lessons of the Holocaust, but also as we're living through a time where we're seeing the passing of the last eyewitnesses, the survivors are passing away, the liberators who were there are passing away, the veterans who fought in the war are passing away. We have to think about what's our responsibility as historians to make sure that we document, but also to make sure that we teach it really well. There's always contemporary relevance. And I think one of the things that's so important is to delve deeply into the historical context to understand the factors. For example, there's a chapter in the volume that looks at Hitler and the Nazis' rise to power mm. in Germany in the 1930s, or the ways in which the Nazis used legal or legalistic mechanisms to implement their policy of patterns of discrimination and persecution, 
using the passage of laws. Understanding that context is critically important to understand how what was a democratic state can, under certain circumstances, become completely perverted by certain ideologies. And we have to know how to recognize that. We have to be on guard against it. We have to understand how that can happen. At the same time, we have to understand the patterns of discrimination. We also want to understand from the perspective of the victims themselves. For students to develop the proper levels of empathy, to understand what it's like to experience persecution, to experience discrimination. And if they do that, our big hope is that we can create better citizens of not only our society and of our country, but sort of of a globally interconnected world who will take care of one another and do what's necessary to protect those who might be discriminated against or might be vulnerable. As a professor, what lessons do you hope to impart on your students as it relates to anti-Semitism and bigotry and just discrimination in general? One of the things that's been amazing to me since I've arrived at UConn, we have incredible faculty spread across various departments who do work in, in Judaic studies. And then I've really come to appreciate and work closely together with directors of other ethnic and area studies programs. And I think we have really strong basis here at UConn for teaching our students to appreciate the diverse experiences of people from, from diverse backgrounds, but to also understand the ways in which this can help us create a society that is interconnected, that not only appreciates and celebrates diversity, but that confronts all sorts of systems of racism and discrimination that are already in existence. That makes total sense. It can't be put in these little buckets because I was thinking about, of course, the connection with the Black Lives Matter protests that are going on. Racism has obviously just been a huge topic of discussion lately. And just as anti-Black violence is alive and well, so is anti-Semitism. In the introduction of understanding and teaching the Holocaust, you mentioned that while you were working on this book, several attacks occurred, including the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, where 11 people were killed, the attacks at a grocery store in New Jersey, and the rabbi's house in New York in December 2019. So this is all, I mean, to me as a white non-Jewish person, my eyes have been opened a lot to the fact that for a long time we were kind of taught Martin Luther King fixed it and the Holocaust is over and then we're really being smacked in the face with, no, this is not done and there's so much more to do. What kinds of things should we be thinking about and how should we be approaching making it better, I guess? (laughs) I think one of the things that's become clear over the past few years, and and I, I appreciate this idea that we had this sense that things were going to get better and that we were on this constant course to improving ourselves and improving our country. And I think since 2016, where we saw this sharp reaction against having our first Black president in the sense that, okay, we were on this march to racial progress and racial justice. And it's really, there's so much interconnection between these anti-Semitic incidents and these racist incidents and the continuation of racial injustice. So, for example, in 2017, when the Unite the Right rally took place in Charlottesville, and you had white nationalists and neo-Nazis marching at the University of Virginia, marching in Charlottesville against what they perceived to be a, a campaign or a global Jewish conspiracy to overtake white America 
and people marching in the streets with these torches saying Jews will not replace us and lumping together all of these movements, immigration to America and Black Lives Matter and what they saw as the fear of overcoming a white nationalist homeland. All these things are so interconnected and we can't separate them out. We have to view them in the ways in which they're connected. I do think that one of the things that becomes clear and a lot of what motivates my work in Holocaust studies and teaching about the Holocaust is a sense that, as I alluded to before, we're 75 years after the war and we see the passing of the last eyewitnesses. And for those who would want to deny this history, Holocaust deniers know that time is on their side. And so we have a responsibility to continue to do that work. I think this work will continue. I don't want to hang my head and say that we're never going to reach a better place, but I think it's going to be a constant level of work that has to continue from one generation to the next. I do have a lot of optimism in the next generation. I think that young people who are being raised in this environment are being heavily influenced by what they're seeing, and I hope will be moved by the cause for racial justice and moved by the cause for social justice and moved by the cause to protect our environment. It's not too late for all of these things. And that's why I, I believe in teaching this. I do have optimism that the next generation can fix the things that those of us who got us to this place haven't quite taken care of yet. We want to take a look at UConn kind of as a microcosm of the broader society. So what is UConn doing well when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion? And what do we need to do better? This is a huge challenge. And if we think about that conversation of diversity, equity, and inclusion, even that phrasing, I think its heart is in the right place. But one of the things that even these protest movements of this year have demonstrated is that it's not simply enough to create DEI committees <laughs> or to appoint an administrator who's responsible for sort of overseeing it. You can't just say, oh, well, we have these programs in Judaic studies or Africana studies or El Instituto or Asian, Asian American or women's gender and sexuality studies. It has to be embedded deeply throughout the curriculum, throughout the structure of the university. And that is a much harder, longer-term fix. We have to provide the level of institutional support that not only promotes our abilities to strengthen these programs, to be able to hire people to be able to do the teaching in these programs and to recruit the students who are interested in these programs, but to do the type of systemic change that is going to embed the thinking that underlies these programs more deeply in all of the different departments across the university as a whole, that is going to take much more work on a structural level and a much deeper investment to oversee that change. And that's not just here at UConn. I mean, that's across the academy. And finally, we're calling this interview series Brave Space. Who do you admire as a model for bravery? I have a third book that is coming out next year, and it's called The Jewish Heroes of Warsaw, The Afterlife of the Revolt, and it looks at the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. I've been thinking a lot about heroism, what that means to call someone a hero, bravery, and in the book itself, I write about the ghetto fighters who organized the revolt in Warsaw and the people who survived and were determined to make sure that that story got told. 
there's a number of people, some of them who are more well-known names, like a Mordechai Nalevich, who was the leader of the revolt, but then people who are less well-known. And those are sort of the, the models of bravery that I think about. So an example is somebody like uh, a young woman who was a member of the underground resistance movement, whose name was Tosia Altman, who served as a courier, would sneak in and out of the ghettos in occupied Poland with false papers, trying to deliver whatever she could to different ghettos. There's another woman by the name of Tzivia Lebetkin, who was one of the leaders of the revolt, and when the revolt was over, managed to sneak out of the Warsaw ghetto through the sewers of Warsaw for two days, crawling through I can't imagine what kind of filth, and then to be dedicated to tell that story after the war. Those are the types of people that, when I think about the types of things that we are going through today or the types of struggles that we identify, I think back to people who lived through that and I say, well, if they could get through that, we can get through this. And then, of course, I'll just mention one last sort of model of bravery. A lot of members of my family are in the healthcare profession. I think about the people who are on the front lines today doing whatever they have to do, even if it means continuing their everyday employment or strapping up and going in to deal with this pandemic. That also is a type of bravery that for those of us who sit at home and have the privilege of being able to teach uh, remotely or via Zoom is something that I greatly admire. All right, that's uh, very interesting stuff. And uh, UConn actually has a very good Judaic Studies program. I do. I took a Judaic Studies course in uh, undergrad. It was very interesting with Stuart Miller, I think. He, he is the Judaic Studies uh, professor who I've spent the most time with, and uh, he's quite a guy. He, professor Miller is a really interesting character and very knowledgeable. And uh, yeah, I, uh, rec- I once spent an afternoon with him and Nick Bellantoni. It was... Uh, Oh my gosh, yeah. two of my like favorite UConn people ever. It was great. That's awesome. That must have been fun. It was very fun. You know what wasn't fun is uh, <laughs> turmoil in our nation's past. And that's why here in the History Corner, we're going to go back to 1970, a year we've actually visited before. Mm-hmm. But I want to talk about an interesting player that you may not have thought of as being involved in UConn history at all, and that is the state of Pennsylvania. Really? In 19, actually, that the law was passed in 1969, but it, it became an issue in 1970. The Pennsylvania State Legislature, which has also been in the news lately, <laughs> has it <laughs> passed a law which eliminated all state financial aid and scholarships to any students who participated in political demonstrations. And they, the law applied not just to public universities in Pennsylvania, but to any Pennsylvania students who were receiving aid from the state. Pennsylvania still to this day, has something called the Pennsylvania Education Assistance Agency, which provides scholarships and other financial aid to Pennsylvania students, whether or not they attend a public school, whether or not they attend a school in Pennsylvania. So if you're a student in Pennsylvania and you go to UConn, for example, and you're getting money um, from the state of Pennsylvania, this law said you would lose that financial support if you were participating in a protest. Wow. This sounds like a Vietnam-era thing. Yeah, it is a Vietnam-era like thing. overstepping. Now, there weren't a lot of Pennsylvania students at UConn at the time. There were just seven. But UConn refused to sign this contract with the state of Pennsylvania. Dean of Students Robert E. Hughes said, the university has not and will not sign this contract. UConn feels very strongly about this matter. Apparently, there had been a move the year before in Connecticut to pass a similar law denying financial aid to students who participated in political demonstrations, but it was shot down in the legislature. 
Hmm. The, the story, uh, by the way, I was reading in the Daily Campus by uh, a student named Claude Albert. And if you know anything about Connecticut Journals and that name, yeah. you're very familiar. He quotes a person, uh, he called someone at the Pennsylvania Education Assistance Agency, who <laughs> said that the aid would be denied to any student who, quote, disrupts the activities of administration or classes at any institution and participates in any activities that constitute moral turpitude. <laughs> Why have we heard that word before? Moral turpitude. I feel like that, ap- I feel like that appeared in another... Uh... History corner, maybe not. It's a good one, though. No, but it hasn't occurred in history on, on, on their free speech. Yes. Maybe that's what it is. Is that part of the um, the obscenity? Uh, yes. Yeah. The Like how you define what's obscene or you know what I'm talking yeah. about, Tom. I know. <laughs> I'm so confused. I know. I did a paper for... Uh, for my journalism ethics, was it ethics? No, law of libel course about the uh, Janet Jackson uh, nipplegate thing. Oh, are you thinking of pur- prurient interest? Prurient interest, maybe, but moral turpitude has come up elsewhere. Moral I, turpitude. Anyway. Yeah. Well, actually, moral turpitude is, is sort of an important term here. I will say, though, before I, I explain why, apparently the, the Higher Education uh, Assistance Agency, she told Claude Albert that over a thousand colleges and universities had signed without comment, sort of kind of a passive-aggressive dig at UConn, but uh, UConn was not one of them recently. Good. Good for UConn. Absolutely. Free speech. So this this law struck me as probably unconstitutional, and you'll not be surprised to learn other people felt that way too, including Haverford College, Quaker institution in Pennsylvania, which sued the state of Pennsylvania over this. Hmm. And in 1971, the U.S. District Court in eastern Pennsylvania struck down part of the law saying that the term moral turpitude was unconstitutionally vague. Because what the heck does turpitude even mean? Yeah. Yeah. You don't want to be mixed up with turpentine on that. That's right. Moral, moral turpentine. So uh, the law still stands. At, they are able to deny aid to students who are convicted of a felony, which I guess is reasonable. Yeah, I, I guess. But the, the, the portion which essentially restricted their freedom of assembly was struck down as unconstitutional by the district court. So good for Haverford good. College. For, uh, for standing up for their students and other students. And good and, for UConn. And good for UConn for standing up for these seven Keystone State <laughs> natives who were attending class here in 1970. Absolutely. Um, is that the end of your story? That's the end. It sort of has a happy ending. I have ending. to tell you, my, it does. My mom, update on last History Corner, or two History Corners ago, my mom was, she's helping me paint a dresser, and she had UConn. She took a break from CNN to play UConn 360 the other day. Good. And... When she got home that night, she sent me the McKendry Spring uh, cover of Neil Young's Down by the River. And I said, Ken already sent me that. You're late. But I told you guys, my mother would find them. She would know them and she would find them on YouTube. And then her other, she wanted me to ask. um, She thought that she, so she graduated in, she graduated in 84, 85, 84. And she thought that Homer Babbage was named Homer Babbage before she left. But she said, your story said it was 85, that it was named. Yeah, that based on the uh, the university records I looked through, um, and I, I guess one of the things that made it sort of kind of agonizingly poignant was that they named it for him after he died. But it's possible mm. that it's possible his name might have been in the mix before that. And they didn't get around to making it formal until 85. Maybe, yeah. Maybe it wasn't a formal name, but she seems to remember calling it Homer Babbage, so... Just just tidbits from Mary. That's all. Tidbits. Thank you for listening, Mary. <laughs> Thank you to everyone who's listening this week and every week. It's more than just my mom, believe it or not. It is. <laughs> it is, yes. Also your uncle. So that's two. <laughs> if you'd like more of this, you can find us on twitter.com 
at UConn Podcast. Find uh, also the um, account where I post old pictures and things at main underscore old. There's a picture as we record this of the apple orchard that was along Route 195 when Route 195 was a dirt road. Hmm. Cool. It was 1985. No, that's not <laughs> <laughs> much older than that. And uh, you can find me at TJ Breen. What about everybody else? Tyler, is there anything you want to tell people? Any any uh, Thanksgiving wishes for the people out there in listener land? I just hope that everyone's able to, you know, spend the holidays with their family and loved ones in some way or another and stay safe at the same time. I know that my family's doing Zoom and although it won't be the same, we'll still get to see each other and I think that'll that'll be nice. Here. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I'm doing the same. I'm doing We're the Zoom thing too. as well. Yep. Yeah. Julie? Um, I'm on Twitter at Julie Bartuka, and we are in the process of categorizing or tagging rather all of the podcasts. So you can go to yukon.edu slash yukon360-podcast and you can click a drop down menu of different categories of stories that we've featured. So we have the Brave Space series and then we've got all kinds of other things. Uh, if you're looking for research stories, student stories, faculty expertise, etc. You can find that and I'm still working on it, but we are going to categorize all 73 episodes and you'll be able to find things that fit your interests. Very nice. We're struggling with how to uh, tag the history corner stuff because it's kind of all <laughs> over the place. We don't want to just say history. I think we got a couple good ones there. We've got yeah. some uh, historic huskies. We have historic events, I think. We, well, we've got it. Traditions. Traditions. Yeah, yeah. We'll figure it out. Pennsylvania, maybe. If we can find some more <laughs> Pennsylvania stories. McKendry Spring. Yeah, McKendry Spring, absolutely. <laughs> Ken, is there anything you want to plug uh, for the good people out there? The ongoing series, uh, Good Music, on Saturdays from 3 to 6 at 91.7 WHUS and Stories, UConn's Sound Alternative, streaming online at whus.org, where you can also find 11 o'clock on Friday mornings, the UConn 360 podcast revisited because we bring back previous episodes uh, with sometimes a fresh take at the very beginning. So for your listening pleasure. Yukon 360 classic. I prefer okay. to think of it. Not new Coke. Coca-Cola no. Classic. That's right. 360 classic. <laughs> All right. Well, this was good, everybody. Uh, hope everyone out there has a happy Thanksgiving and a uh, safe Thanksgiving. And uh, we're in the home stretch for the semester. And uh, thanks for listening. And we'll, we'll talk to you in two weeks. Thank you.